You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And time is of the essence. Today is 10-4, good buddy. 10-4-2022, and I am pressed for time as... I did not expect to be, but a friend of mine is going to need some help getting down to his basement after surgery. And so when the call comes through that they are 15 minutes out, I will be leaving to go and help and then I will come back. But I should like very much to record a podcast episode today, Carpe Diem Quam Minimum Credula Pastero, Seize the Day putting no confidence in tomorrow. But I have a few assorted musings to share with you, and in no particular order. First of all, I did start The Life of Samuel Johnson today, and I am very much enjoying it. It does meet its reputation so far as being perhaps the greatest biography in the English language, written by a James Boswell, who was the junior of the two men, Samuel Johnson and James Boswell, wrote my favorite book of this past weekend. You can go back one episode to check out more about that. But I only found out as I was researching a little bit about the two men, having heard of Dr. Johnson, never having heard of James Boswell, that James Boswell is said to have written the best biography of the English language, and his subject was The Life of Samuel Johnson, which is, of course, said to be the best biography in the English language. And it's curious to me that it is about this man. And so I've started it. I'm very much enjoying it. And I'll read for you some quotes here in just a minute. But first, I noticed a headline today as I was working from the office From the Epoch Times, CCP opens police departments in the U.S. So that is a follow-up on another recent podcast episode comment in which I was talking about Canada allowing the Chinese Communist Party to open up police stations in Canada to the north of us. Apparently, we are here in the U.S. going to allow the CCP to open up police stations in our own country, or at least reportedly New York is going to allow CCP police stations. Supposedly, these are to help Chinese citizens living abroad. But according to the Epoch Times, and they certainly would know, having been founded by Falun Gong practitioners who were fleeing persecution and trying to expose CCP persecution of Falun Gong adherents, according to the Epoch Times, the real purpose of these police departments in foreign countries like the U.S. and Canada is to monitor Chinese citizens living abroad, to persecute those who are dissidents, those who are objecting to the regime of the Chinese Communist Party. And so that's very concerning. I don't feel like I need to say that, but I will say it anyways, because if everyone thought that was obvious, we wouldn't be allowing the CCP to open up police stations here in the U.S., but here we are. Some people apparently need to be explained these things. And so why is this a problem? Well, for one thing, 
This is not a communist country officially, not yet, but you can bet your bottom dollar that those countries and those jurisdictions within countries, which are okay with the CCP opening up police stations within their borders, in their neighborhoods, are not all that concerned about whether we do or don't become communist ourselves here in the U.S. And so we should not be surprised on the one hand, but we should be very concerned, very alarmed. This is, if you're familiar with the ancient Greeks, the equivalent of some Greek city-state allowing Xerxes, king of the Persians, to open up a police station. Imagine if the Athenians had allowed Xerxes to open up a police station in Athens or in Sparta. What would you say about that? You would say that Athens or Sparta were being colonized, and yet it was the farthest thing from all of the Greeks' minds as they fought the Persians that they would allow a foreign regime, loathsome to them and to their conception of freedom, to colonize them. Even a token of earth and water, a token of tribute, was too much to be borne, but of course it was symbolic. And if a bit of earth and a bit of water being sent to the Persian king is loathsome, how much more so allowing the police of the foreign king or the foreign regime to erect a law enforcement department building, edifice, structure in your city. Very much more, I would say. Uh, Very much more. We are so far in places like New York from being ready to withstand the Chinese Communist Party. We are inviting them in and welcoming them. And that cannot be born. That needs to stop. In other news, Elon Musk is offering as of today to go through with buying Twitter after all. It looked like he was going to back out of the deal when certain information was not being provided to him in a timely manner. And then ironically, Twitter went from saying, no, we don't want to sell the company to you, to saying, oh, no, you have to now. You have to buy the company. And so now Elon Musk has gone from saying, I want to buy it, to saying, "Mm, maybe not, to then saying today, "Uh, yes, okay, maybe I will go through it. I'll go through with it after all. But trading has halted on Twitter stocks as the price soars. And who knows what the outcome will be, whether Elon Musk will buy Twitter is anyone's guess. But with November just a month away, the election, midterm elections here in the U.S. just a month away, even the fact that this is on our minds and in the news is probably a good thing for conservative politics in the U.S. Now, a word about conservative politics. I think it's very unfortunate that conservatives get such a bad rap. It seems to me as though conservatives typically are defined by the left, by the mainstream media, by academia, by pop culture as only being against things. But there are things which we should be against, which it is good to have conservatives around saying, no, I'm against that. Think of the hurricane that just blew through my mother's neck of the woods down in Fort Myers, Florida, and the destruction wreaked, the havoc wreaked on the people of Florida who are still without power or clean drinking water, even without their homes, even about 100 estimated so far, having lost their lives. 
a hurricane blowing through and destroying your livelihood or your home or your life itself or the lives of your loved ones, that is something to be against in a certain sense. Or if you can make buildings that are able to withstand a hurricane, and you know that you live in an area where hurricanes do blow through routinely, it's a wise thing to do that. I saw a photo on LinkedIn yesterday of someone's hurricane glass, hurricane windows in their home, which must have been full up to three or four feet of water on the outside, and yet they were holding. And the hallway inside the house looked relatively dry. It certainly wasn't filled with three or four feet of water. If there was a little bit of water on the floor, it wasn't three or four feet. And I thought to myself, that is what conservatives should be like. Hurricane windows that actually work or a building that is made to withstand a category five hurricane in a part of the country that gets hurricanes routinely. Imagine the folly of saying that someone should not be listened to in an area prone to occasional disaster because they are talking about actually preparing for worst case scenarios. Also, consider the story in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis of Joseph. You might know of him as Joseph with the multicolored coat or Joseph, the one who had all those dreams that got him into trouble with his brothers or Joseph, daddy's favorite. Joseph ends up going through some very hard times. And yet at the end of it, he's brought out because he can interpret dreams and he interprets the dreams of Pharaoh, which God has given to Pharaoh predicting accurately that there would be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And what is Joseph's advice on giving the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams? To store up the extra and the surplus during the seven years of plenty so that there is food enough for everyone in the seven years of famine. That is a very conservative mindset. But imagine being against Joseph or criticizing him or dismissing him or running him out of town on a rail or putting him back in prison even harder for as long as possible because he was suggesting something be done to get ready for the forthcoming famine. Imagine trying to mock him and deride him on Saturday Night Live. I'm just guessing that the Egyptians probably had something like Saturday Night Live. Imagine mocking and ridiculing Joseph as he's talking about putting away a little something for a rainy day or, as the case may be, a very not rainy period of seven years. And imagine it working. And how foolish would that be? And what would we say about a people who destroyed themselves because they did away with all of the folks who want to talk about saving and being conservative? What does conservative even mean? It means you are conserving. That means that you are with a future mindset of service. I don't want to just serve today. I want to be able to serve in the future. And so I'm going to put something in store for the future that we will be glad we have when the time comes. So I'll tell you a little bit of an anecdote from the hurricane last Wednesday. We're coming up on 
one week ago tomorrow. And I'm happy to report that my brother is bringing our mother to Colorado even now. Last report I got was that they were two hours out north of Fort Myers on the road with a U-Haul trailer in tow and what things could be salvaged and retained and cleaned up. Having got the Steinway Grand Piano out of our mother's condo, my brother now has her on her way out of there until things get sorted out. But while I was on the phone with her last Wednesday, the hurricane was overhead as she was sitting out on the balcony and the waters were coming up and the rains were coming down and the wind was blowing very hard. And I thought to myself, I don't know what's going to happen to my mother. I'm on the phone with her right now. She's obviously scared, not for no reason, but I don't know what's going to happen to my mother. And so I asked her at one point, do you have something to break glass and get into one of those second floor units? If you don't, you're stuck out there. If you do, I think you should break some glass and try to get in. Or do you see any neighbors who might be able to let you in? And my mother did not have anything with which to break glass to get into one of the second floor units. And I thought to myself, this right here is motivating to me to make sure I have something with which I can break glass on my person. I was watching some safety videos at a safety meeting for Equal Automation on Thursday morning. And as I'm watching these videos, one of them is an Australian couple and their kids driving somewhere on vacation. And the wife and the kids have all fallen asleep and the dad starts nodding off. And he only wakes up as they're going off road into a lake. And the car crashes into the water and immediately begins to sink. And he's the only one who gets out. He tries diving to retrieve some of his kids or his wife. And the commercial ends with him just flailing about in the water, screaming for help. Someone please help me. And the message of the video was don't fall asleep at the wheel. If you're feeling drowsy, you're feeling tired, pull off to the side, take a nap. Don't push it and risk falling asleep at the wheel and killing yourself or someone else, your passengers, someone in another vehicle. Don't risk it. And I thought to myself as I was watching that of having been on the phone with my mother the day before and how she didn't have anything to break into one of those second floor units. And so she's out there as the hurricane is overhead and the waters are coming up and she made it through. She's okay. She's in one piece. She survived. But imagine someone on a macro scale on a societal level, on a national level, at a cultural level, or within your family, within your church, within your city, within your place of business, within your school, someone saying, we should have some emergency tools. We should have a fire extinguisher, for instance, in case there's a fire. We should have some property insurance in case there's a flood. We should have a glass breaker in case 
we accidentally go off the road into a body of water and need to get out or flip the vehicle and can't open the door but could smash a window. Imagine mocking someone because they're saying that bad things like those mentioned do happen. Imagine mocking someone because they were saying, we need to put something away and save it for the future for a rainy day. That's the time that we live in, unfortunately. The bitter irony is that we have two camps, basically. One, which is conservative. One, which is traditionally called liberal, but decreasingly liberal, more authoritarian and repressive and leftist, more lawless in many ways. And on the one hand, you have the conservatives saying, we should conserve liberty, ironically. And yes, we should put structure in some places. Think of a grain silo. You could say, I want to liberate this grain from that silo that you're trying to store it in for seven years of plenty before we get to seven years of want, seven years of famine. But you're just playing games with language in that case. What you're really about is opposing an effort at putting something away for a rainy day or for a not rainy day, as the case may be, depending on if you're dealing with drought or floods caused by a hurricane. We have one side saying we are preserving future liberty if we are conserving our rights, our material goods, our opportunities, our freedom. And you have on the other hand, on the other side of the aisle, folks who bill themselves as liberal, and yet their idea of liberty is, according to some of these headlines at the Daily Wire I'm looking at, without even having to read the full story, Biden's education secretary, students need access to abortions to thrive in school and in life. That's the kind of liberation they want to conserve, ironically. Conservative and liberal are relative terms. And the question should always be asked, whichever you're dealing with, what are you conserving? And what is your idea of liberation? For 50 years, abortion was so-called the law of the land. And then the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade over the summer. And now Democrats are very concerned that when they want to get an abortion for themselves or their daughters or their girlfriends, for their wives, for their victims, they won't be free to. But in a very real sense, what they're really talking about is conserving. Ironically, they have become conservatives now that the status quo for 50 years has been legalized abortion. And ironically, it is the so-called conservatives who are pro-life, who are against legalized abortion, who are being progressive because it would be progress to repeal legalized abortion in all 50 states, all over the U.S., and certainly to stop promoting it around the world. It would be progress in the right direction 
to say you cannot murder a child. It would be very liberal to say to unborn children who have been murdered by the tens of millions over the past five decades, be free and live your life. Why don't we work on making it easier for couples who can't have children, not naturally, not on their own, not without help to adopt? You know, this past Sunday that I was in church, because I wasn't in church this past Sunday, but two Sundays ago, a couple we know got up and announced very happy news that they had adopted a little girl who they've been fostering. And she comes from a very broken home, a very damaged home. Her mother is a drug addict, if I'm not mistaken, and cannot even function on her own, much less take care of children. And my friend, who has just adopted this little girl, along with his wife, adding her to their family of several other girls, which they have had on their own together, the old-fashioned way, he got up and he said something which would drive the left and Democrats and so-called progressives crazy in this country if they heard it. He said that there are a lot of couples that can't have children these days who are flooding adoption agencies with requests for children. And then he clarified, because what he's really talking about, he's not talking about infertile couples, Christian couples who just can't have children the old-fashioned way. He's talking about homosexual couples who cannot because their parts are not made for that. They don't have the correct hardware for that. And yet they want children anyways. They want to get as close as possible to having a traditional family without actually having a traditional family because love is love and they're living a lie. And so he did clarify. He said, just to be clear, I'm talking about homosexual couples and Christian couples who love Jesus need to adopt children in this country. In effect, we need to get to those children first. And someone could say, that's a very politically incorrect thing to say. And my response would be, that's a very theologically correct thing to say. That's old hat Christianity, 2,000 years of Christianity. That is just a continuation of a good tradition. Not all traditions are good, but that is a good tradition in Christianity in the West that Christians have since the Roman Empire rescued children who were unwanted, who were abandoned, who were exposed to the elements and left to die. Christians have, for 2,000 years, taken in children and raised them as their own because, you know what? We are adopted by God into the household of faith through Christ. And no, we are not obligated to endorse or affirm or celebrate a homosexual couple when they want to take a child into their home Very often, children who are taken in by homosexual couples are molested, and if nothing else, they're brought up in rebellion against God. Jesus says at a certain point, if you want to get political, that for anyone who would cause one of these little ones who believe in him to stumble or to sin, it would be better that a millstone would be tied around their neck and they'd be dropped into the depths of the sea It will be better for them if that's what happens 
than that they would cause one of these little ones who believe in him to stumble or to sin. And yet, a pediatric gender clinic scrubbing its website amidst criticism of gender-related treatments in this country is news right now. And according to the left, that's fair, that they would scrub their website and threaten those who are trying to expose their dirty deeds, mutilating children, not just molesting them, mutilating them. This is the Marquis de Sade. It's no longer enough to those who style themselves liberal, but are actually libertine, to put your unborn children in their mother's wombs, harvest tissue from them while they're still alive for so-called medical research. It's no longer enough to do that. No, now we have to corrupt them and we have to mutilate them. We'll talk them into it like it's their idea, but we want to mutilate children outside the womb as well in the interest of social justice, in the interest of saving the planet. That's sadistic. That's sick. But if your philosophy has more in common with the Marquis de Sade than it does with Christ, it follows. And it shouldn't surprise us. It should appall us. It should cause us to be very concerned for the future of this country. Not because folks who are that way have a future, but because they don't. And because we have a responsibility to call to repentance, to rebuke, to correct, to admonish the thinking which endorses that, which affirms that. It's not enough that we just wouldn't do it ourselves. And then we say, ah, well, I wouldn't personally get one, but who am I to tell someone else that they can't? Who am I to refrain from affirming someone who would get that done? And it's crazy how crazy people are about this question of abortion in our day. I commented against my better judgment or maybe with my better judgment (laughs) from my better judgment. In the past week, I saw this Facebook ad for a Democrat who is running for Congress in the state of Colorado attacking their Republican rival opponent as being an extremist. An extremist on abortion because this Republican does not believe that there should be any exceptions to a ban on abortion. And I commented and I said, you know what's extreme with regards to abortion? That the so-called law of the land has allowed tens of millions of unborn children in this country to be brutally and barbarically murdered in their mother's womb without anesthesia in ways which we would never permit even the worst criminals to be executed. That's what's really extreme here. That's what's barbaric. Not that a Republican is standing on principle against abortion. And so some guy, some human male, I hesitate to call him a man, but he looks like he's of an age where that would otherwise be appropriate, started trolling me on every public post I had made on Facebook. He 
started off with replying to my comment on that post, but then proceeded to comment and reply on every other post he could get his hands on until I got tired of the notifications dinging incessantly. And he was just being vitriolic and abusive and not substantive. He, he was just trolling me. And so I blocked him. I have better things to do with my time than feed the trolls. Like podcast, for instance, about trolls. <laughs> but he was a crazy person about it. An absolute crazy person about it. Not replying with substance at all. Just abuse. Name-calling. Contradiction. Insults. Ad hominem. I think to myself, with regards to abortion, that the party, which is for abortion on demand, at any time, any place, for any reason, insisting that even children in this country should be allowed to abort their children after the public schools talk them into being liberated from sexual mores, supposing they don't get themselves into a homosexual relationship that would preclude the possibility of pregnancy or mutilate themselves and thereby remove the ability to get pregnant. The same party that is for that is also systematically dismantling the global economy, supposedly in the name of saving the planet. But we do well, again, to ask for the particulars, saving the planet for what and from whom? If we're the ones being told, even if we are not well off, by those who are well off and are consuming quite a lot, actually, if we're being told we need to cut back, reduce, 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 well, it doesn't really feel like the planet is being saved for us. It feels like the planet is being saved for those who are not really reducing their consumption. How many of these jet setters are giving up their jet and walking to and fro? How many of these jet setters are giving up their homes, their extra homes, to house illegal aliens and refugees and homeless people? But they want us to scale down, opt for an older home at a higher interest rate because they've printed money to the point that our dollars are worth less and less. There's a great story I was just looking at, and I'm not much for sports, but this one did catch my attention. At the Daily Wire, Virginia Kruta writes, Tyreek Hill only needs four words to explain why he chose dolphins over jets in trade battle. Tyreek Hill apparently is someone highly in demand as far as NFL players go. He said, the trade to the Jets was very close to happening from the Chiefs. It was very close to happening this offseason, but it was those state taxes, man. <laughs> of course, the Dolphins play in Florida, which, hurricanes notwithstanding, is a much better state. Certainly, it has a much better governor than New York does. Tyreek Hill says, but just, just those state taxes, man. I realized I had to make a grown-up decision, and now here I am in the great city of Miami. You know, great weather, great people, beautiful people. I feel like, so here I am. Is that a moral issue? How much people are taxed? How much money is printed to devalue your currency, your savings, your retirement, 
your wages. Is that a moral issue? I think it's a moral issue. As a father of eight, as the sole income provider for my family, I am very shortly changing jobs. And I don't want to, but I have to. I have to, to provide for my family. I have eight children and a wife. And the problem here, fun fact, fun story, is when I have a conversation with the, I won't name names, but Democrat, so-called liberal, announcing that I'm putting in my two weeks notice, I'm told, no, man, I, I totally understand. You're the sole breadwinner. You've got more kids than you know what to do with. I get it. And of course, nothing's meant by that. Nothing, nothing untoward, nothing insulting. I don't think. And yet the Democrats just don't get it. They don't want to get it, but they just don't get it. Even if they did want to get it, I think it would take some work. I don't have more kids than I know what to do with. I have more kids than what Democrats know what to do with. Their idea is to take all of the kids in the country, chop them up, mutilate them, pack them off to the government schools. But that's not why God gave us these children. And by God's grace, his word can teach us how to train up our children in the fear and admonition of him so that they have a blessed life, so they have a future, so they have a life, so they have something to look forward to. But it's so obvious that the folks running our country, very many of them, don't have that vision. If they do, they're certainly not communicating it. They're communicating quite the opposite. And ironically, for all their material prosperity, they can't be bothered. And that's very confusing. I think to myself, I'm the one who is looked at as irresponsible. No, 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 no. When you have all this money to yourself, on purpose, systematically, because you aborted your own children, and the ones you did have, you're like what Polybius says about the Greeks, why the Greeks collapsed. The young men... Prior to Rome conquering the Greek city-states, the young men gave up on marriage. And if they got married, they didn't want to have children. And if they did have children, they only wanted to have one or two. And if they did have one or two, they didn't want to be troubled with actually raising those one or two kids who had been born to their households. That's how Greece imploded. Now, it's not to say that getting married, having children... Having lots of children makes you holy and righteous, but by golly, if you are adamantly against it, you have, in some sense, handicapped yourself in terms of growth. If you're adamantly against it, if you want that so much and it's just not in the cards and the good Lord has not provided a spouse for you or the two of you are just not having children, you know what? Be content because God must have some other plan and design. And what I would love to see the church in America pushing more for is no less to bring an end to abortion. I think it's every bit as righteous a cause as the abolition of slavery was, and then some. And then some. I think it's more righteous a cause in many ways than the abolition of slavery. Because at least with slavery, we're not murdering, not necessarily There's at least a chance at life. What does 
Proverbs say? Better a live dog than a dead lion? But again, the liberals, their idea of liberation with high taxes, printing money until a kind of indirect tax cuts the value of your dollars, your wages, your retirement, your savings in half. Their idea of being liberal is being generous with other people's money. That's no virtue. And then they twist the scriptures, which again, might I just add, even Satan quotes scripture, but they quote scripture and they selectively quote scripture. They don't quote the scriptures that talk about the Lord loving a cheerful giver as they guilt trip people into giving away what little freedom they should have in exchange for freedoms. There are no freedoms at all. I do think tax rates in our day are a moral issue. I think it's immoral to tax people to the point where they can't provide and they can't grow and they can't leave something for their children's children. The righteous leave an inheritance for their children's children. But it's not righteous to destroy other people's wealth on purpose or for no purpose, just for the fun of it, just because you can. That's not righteous. That's wicked. You're not liberating them. You're enslaving them. This is doublespeak. Consider some of the passages about taxes in the Bible. Just a few, and then I've got to run. Romans 13, 7, yes, it does say, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honored to whom honor is owed. That does not mean that tax rates of 100% are owed if, Simon says, 100%. Consider Amos 5.11. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built Houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell on them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. Isn't that curious that we have here a judgment? God sees taxes as a moral issue. Consider Matthew 22. If I mention taxes in the Bible, you probably go there. You probably think it. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. This is Jesus, of course. Who else? And if they can do it to Jesus, nobody's safe. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. And this is a backhanded compliment, of course. This is flattery. If they really believed the things they were saying, they wouldn't be trying to trap him. But notice their question. They set him up with flattery, and then they deliver what is supposed to be a gotcha. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then verse 18 says, But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? (laughs) Which just goes to show, it just... It just proves that Jesus was not always the nice guy that some of us seem to think he was. He was not always nice per se. (laughs) He certainly was not wimpy. That's pretty tough talk. (laughs) Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? (laughs) Show me the coin for the tax which is authority, right? He's speaking with authority, even there. 
show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Verse 20, and Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. And that is fantastic every way around, unless you're the Pharisees and unrepentant, in which case, that's a mic drop moment, and now you look like a fool. And you are, actually, to be fair, a fool. So you look like what you are. But Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And you know why that's a marvelous answer? I'll tell you. Because it introduces a whole other line of questions, which we do well to ask in earnest and seek out. If we value our lives, if we love our neighbors, what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God? True story. True story. That is the question at the root of the statement. Because how can you render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's if you don't know what belongs to God and you don't know what belongs to Caesar? You think everything belongs to Caesar? Or, for that matter, you think everything belongs only to God and you don't owe anything? And yet, Romans 13, it says, we should pay to all what is owed to them. And yet, the question is begged. And what is our answer? How do we know And are we engaged with these things? Are we paying attention? Do we care? We should care. It's not for no reason that it was surprising, scandalous even, that Christ dined with, associated with, tax collectors and prostitutes. If you work for the IRS... And essentially, the word association, concept association, is <laughs> uh, <clears throat> if Jesus. I'll put it. I'll put it to you this way: If Jesus is coming under criticism because of the kind of company that he keeps with tax collectors and prostitutes. And it's a question, not that he is a tax collector, not that he is a prostitute, but the question is being asked, why do you hang out with, why do you dine with, why do you have anything whatsoever to do with tax collectors and prostitutes? How much worse to be the tax collector in that scenario and you are regarded as on par with prostitutes, morally speaking, spiritually speaking. Now, the good news is, His grace is sufficient for you. You should repent of your wickedness, but consider Zacchaeus as a model for repentance, taking more than what was fair. Zacchaeus repaid those he had defrauded, which is to say it is possible to defraud those who are having taxes extracted from them. It is possible to go well beyond what is fair, reasonable, decent, called for, and for what? Why would anyone do that? Either because you hate the people you are trying to take taxes from, or because you are trying to enrich yourself. Now, consider how many of our public servants 
have become very rich. They were not rich before they entered public office. Their families were not rich before they entered public office. Now they are rich. And tell me that this is morally neutral. And the only moral responsibility is on those who pay taxes to keep on paying the taxes. Tell me that it's morally neutral. When Zacchaeus, on meeting Jesus and being awed by the Savior, was convicted of sin. Tell me that it's morally neutral when he's convicted of sin and then he goes and he repays those he had defrauded. It's not morally neutral. It's not spiritually neutral. Even taxes are a moral question and a spiritual question, and God cares. Elsewise, Amos makes no sense. The judgment is fitting to the crime and the sin. You defrauded to build up great big homes, wealthy, rich properties, and you will not get to enjoy them. A man reaps what he sows, and you did not just reap surplus from the poor you defrauded. You will reap judgment from Almighty God. And that applies to our rulers in this country, not just with regards to the abortion question, even with regards to taxes. They drive up taxes, and then they implore the poor to abort their own children, and then they harvest the tissues and the organs of the unborn, and then with their millions, they prolong their own lives in extravagant homes using the bodies of infants. That's monstrous. That's wicked. That's demonic. That's satanic. And if it costs me my head to say as much or to call for repentance of the same, you'll get no apology from me. I'm in good company. Repent. Repent. A day of judgment is coming. And I'm not talking geopolitics. I'm talking Almighty God. Repent. Jeremiah 29 says, we should seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh our God has brought us in our exile. If we are exiles, and according to Peter, according to Peter, the New Testament letters of the Apostle Peter, we are exiles. And the prophet Jeremiah gives the word of the Lord to the exiles in the Old Testament. Seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile. Build homes, plant gardens and vineyards, Take wives, have children, increase in the land and do not decrease. Have children with your wives, raise them up, give them away in marriage so that they also will have children. Increase in the land and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile for in its welfare you will find your welfare as well. If God can say that through the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, I'm going to need someone to unpack for me why that wouldn't apply to us every bit as much today. Some of us are too heavenly minded for the earthly good of God's kingdom. And we need to reevaluate that in light of the whole counsel of God. One last thing, and then I'll leave you for this episode anyway. Some missionaries we know overseas posted eight hours ago that a countrywide power collapse is affecting their teammates and friends right now, still in country. They're here in the States. But the ask was that we would lift up and ask that the Father would speak and give endurance in the heat and the darkness. 
And I'm all for that. I'm all for that. We should absolutely pray for our missionaries and their partners overseas. Yet I would add a small note that with regards to my mother's situation, where my brother recently was trying to convince her to evacuate ahead of Hurricane Ian striking, when she could have evacuated with some of her belongings in her car, on her own power. I am not trying to be critical, but I am saying there would be nothing whatsoever unspiritual about heeding conservative caution, prudent counsel on the front end before a whole country's power grid collapses, including our own. There's nothing selfish in that, as many people mean selfishness. If Jeremiah 29 can say that it should be a contributing factor in our calculations, in our motivations, that we seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh our God has brought us in our exile, for in its welfare we will find our welfare. If God can put that out there and say this will be a benefit to us, far be it from us to over-spiritualize perceiving a benefit and doing something beneficial as though there's something inherently untoward or wicked about doing something that would be beneficial. This is wisdom we're talking about. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, in a sense, Job, in a sense, the book of James in the New Testament, if you will, have a lot to say about wisdom, making good choices, because good choices are beneficial. If there's no benefit, well then, why not? Why not do whatever? If Ecclesiastes in the first part is correct, that there is no difference between the wise man and the fool, between the righteous man and the wicked man, the same event happens to them both, there is no difference whatsoever, then do whatever you want. If there is no resurrection from the dead, for instance, in the New Testament, I think we find a kind of echo and equivalent. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then we are, Paul says, above all men most to be pitied. Why is that? Because we are foregoing pleasures now, expecting a reward in return for our faith in God. Our faith is misplaced if there is no resurrection from the dead. And yet, Old Testament, New Testament, we are told to do this, that, or the other thing, or to not do this, that, or the other thing on the basis of cost-benefit. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? We are being asked to consider the benefit to ourselves. And for that matter, how can you love your neighbor as you love yourself? If you have been taught to utterly loathe and despise yourself and to do systematically the hair shirt thing, economically, politically, if only because it hurts and it's uncomfortable, is this a kind of penance? God forbid. As if we could save ourselves of what account is Christ's atoning sacrifice on our behalf if we need to do penance for our own sins. And I'm not talking about making restitution for those we've wronged, harmed, defrauded, like Zacchaeus. If it's in your power to restore those you have harmed, there is no better way to show repentance. But if you are trying to just make yourself uncomfortable, because someone has told you, thereby you become righteous, 
because in suffering is righteousness? No, 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 no. The New Testament is clear about that as well. It is possible to suffer for other reasons besides righteousness, like, for instance, as Proverbs and Ecclesiastes say, for folly, because you're not very wise. And when we get to the root of wisdom and folly, because you don't really fear God, you don't revere God as you ought to. Far be it from us to see that trouble coming and to do nothing. The wise see trouble coming and they hide themselves. We do well to hide ourselves in Christ and to seek a benefit from the Lord and the Lord's blessing and to pray for the Lord's blessing on our country and our countrymen. And what greater blessing could there be than repentance? He gives more grace, yes, but we should not sin that grace might abound all the more. God forbid, by no means. These things are not political in a way that is off limits for God, as though he respects some kind of a boundary. As soon as we say that this, that, or the other thing is political, he says, oh, okay, all right, I'll keep out. Like you're the teenage kid and I'm the permissive parent and you've got a sign on your door that says, keep out. Okay, I'll keep out and I'll respect your boundaries. No, God is slow to anger, but the scriptures say he will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. We should not presume on the riches of his kindness and his grace. Rather, we should be comforted that now is the time to repent and turn away from our sins and seek his face and ask for his mercy and his grace that he would heal our land. These are good things to want and to desire. These are good things to pray for and pursue. These are good things to encourage other people to be motivated by. And I dare say, I dare say, I would be so bold to tell it to you that if we don't believe that, we may just need to read our Bibles a bit more diligently, a bit more closely, a bit more conscientiously. May God grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear. I gotta run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.